Money Management with Mike Mail. This is Jim Harvey, president of Opus 111 Group. Today, I'm substituting for your regular host, Mike Mail, who manages our Spokane branch. This is not the usual Saturday morning call-in show in which you can call in with your questions. Naturally, we look forward to returning to normal call-in formats as soon as everyone's health and safety can be assured. However, if you have any questions you'd like us to address in future money management shows, please email them to info at opus111group.com, and we will either answer them directly or during next week's show. We also encourage and invite you to visit our website, and particularly the Learn page, for the latest on the markets, the coronavirus, and uh, how you might respond. Today, after bringing you up to speed on the week that was in the markets and some key economic news, I want to provide you with some perspective on what we can expect for the second half of 2021, given the fact that we just completed the second quarter. We will discuss uh, the mid-year update, coronavirus inflation in the old economy, Social Security, uh, something that both Democrats and Republicans agree are important for retirement security in this country. And then finally, what markets tend to do in July and August uh, and whether to pay attention to that kind of thing as you contemplate your own situation. So the Dow jumped more than 200 points to close on Friday above 35,000 for the first time ever. U.S. equities rose Friday with the major averages hitting new records as they overcame concerns about economic growth from earlier in the week. Dow Jones closed uh, up 238 points or up 0.68% to that new record of 35,062.41. The S&P gained 1% to 4411. The NASDAQ composite uh, climbed 1.04% to trade at 14,836. The 10 year Treasury yield rose on Friday to 1.285, easing concerns about the economy that the bond market triggered on Monday. The 10 year uh, yield fell to a five month low of 1.13% earlier in the week. The bond market has surprised everybody, said Nick Frelinghusen, a portfolio manager at Chilton Trust. The strength of the rally is telling the equity market that what's happening with inflation is probably an overshoot, that a lot of these things are not endemic and they're not going to be the things that we'll have to live with in the 70s and 80s. Strong earnings from tech stocks made investors optimistic ahead of reports uh, next week from the biggest names in the sector, Twitter and Snap, each jumped Thursday following better than expected second quarter earnings reports. Twitter traded 3% higher, while Snap shot up 24%. Facebook gained more than 5.5% on the results from its social media competitors. Uh, Google, or Alphabet, added 3.5%. Both report next week, along with Apple, Microsoft, and Amazon. All three U.S. stock averages closed the week in the green, rebounding from last week's losses and Monday's sharp sell-off. Uh, the Dow dropped more than 700 points to start the week as yields fell, unnerving equity investors about the economy. The S&P 500 is up 1.96 per the week, and NASDAQ is up 2.84. Both are within 1% of their intraday records. The Dow is up 1.08 for the week. The stock market on Monday suffered its biggest one-day fall since October as investors appeared to take a cue from the bond market and started worrying about growth. The question for traders is whether it's spooky enough to trigger what many view as a long overdue sell-off or merely offers yet another dip buying opportunity for those uh, that are bullish. The rates have been signaling growth concerns for the last several months, said Marvin Lowe, senior global market strategist at State Street in a phone interview. 
The culprit getting most of the blame Monday was the Delta variant of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 and which is responsible for growing infections around the world, including in the US and other countries that have rolled out vaccines. Fears of renewed travel restrictions and the further spread of the highly transmissible variant, particularly among the unvaccinated, put pressure on travel-related stocks and other industries and sectors that had previously been beneficiaries of bets on cyclical companies expected to benefit the most from the economic reopening. In the end, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 725 points or 2.1% on Monday to close at 33,962, its biggest one-day percentage and point drop since October 28th of 2020. The S&P gave up 68 points or 1.6% to end at 4258, while the NASDAQ shed 152 points or 1.1%, finishing at 14,274, the worst day for both indices since May 12th. Meanwhile, the small cap Russell 2000 fell 1.5% to 2130, avoiding a close in correction territory at below 2124, representing a drop of at least 10% from a recent peak. But the Delta variant wasn't solely to blame. Lowe noted that prospects for additional fiscal stimulus from Washington have been stalled for some time. An earlier boost for the reopening trade had come after runoff Senate elections in Georgia gave uh, the Democrats uh, narrow control of the Senate chamber and raised prospects for passage of aggressive fiscal measures pushed by President Biden. Investors were also citing U.S.-China relations after the Biden administration blamed Beijing for a hack of Microsoft Exchange server software that compromised tens of thousands of computers around the world earlier this year. But after an initial victory on a major spending plan, efforts towards large infrastructure spending bill and plans for additional measures have bogged down, leaving only monetary policy in focus. And while the Federal Reserve isn't rushing to pull back on bond buying or raise interest rates, a pullback in monetary stimulus is in sight. And other major central banks, including the Bank of Canada and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, are taking steps, steps to reduce stimulus, Lowe said. The Delta variant, meanwhile, makes things much more uncertain in terms of how things are going to regress, Lowe said, noting that the peak um, growth is... Uh, behind us. Meanwhile, yields on uh, long-dated U.S. Treasuries and other developed market bonds have tumbled. Indeed, a drop in the 10-year yield, uh, uh, which, uh, uh, which has risen to almost 1.8% in March as growth expectations surge and inflation fears mounted, subsequently slumped. On Monday, it traded below 120 for the first time since mid-February. Don't forget, that yields and debt prices move in opposite directions. But others saw the Monday sell-off as long overdue given a run that saw major indices continue to set all-time highs as recently as last week. Indeed, a pickup in volatility accompanied the rising worries about COVID and the new variants has triggered a pickup in volatility with a CBOE volatility index, the VIX, jumping uh, in recent sessions to trade above 22 in late Monday action after trading nearly 14 two weeks ago, below its long-term average of 20. This helped feed the weakness in equities, said Mike Lewis, head of U.S. equities cash trading at Barclays, in email comments. The volatility jump causes systematic traders, particularly trend-following commodity trading advisors, to take profits on recent equity gains, creating a lot of supply in an equity market with low summer volumes and not a great liquidity backup.
Another 2.2 million uh, stimulus checks have gone out. Um, the aggregate value of all the stimulus checks sent out since early March is about 400 billion. The American Rescue Plan Act authorized payments of $1,400 a person plus $1,400 per eligible dependent for individual families who qualified. Uh, the latest batch brings the total number of payments to disperse to more than 171 million with an aggregate value of 400 billion, according to the announcements from the IRS, Treasury Department, and the Department of Fiscal Service. These payments started going out in March when the American Rescue Plan was signed into law by President Joe Biden. You know, let's look back, uh, you know, 16 months ago, uh, nobody had heard about coronavirus. You think back, and we've gone through this dramatic uh, period of time in our in our history, not only in the U.S., but around the world. We were plunged into a global recession, and when we looked at the outlook in January, uh, we shared our expectations that we anticipated an effective vaccine rollout that improved confidence and lowered infection rates, uh, with the U.S. experiencing strong economic reopening in the second quarter followed thereafter by the Eurozone. We favored risk assets and prefer cyclicals over defensives in that environment, but we did do some defensive uh, positions as well. And we have largely seen that come to fruition. So the real question is now, uh, what can we expect for the second half of this year and going into 2022? Uh, our base case anticipates that economies will accelerate as they reopen, but that any accompanying rise in inflation would be uh, transitory or maybe short-lived. Uh, and that's important to, to keep in mind, but that's the base case. You know, there's also a case to be made that with the uh, mutations of the, of the virus and uh, lower vaccination rates in certain parts of this country and around the world, that uh, we could have a research and we are seeing some of that. And so there is a case to be made there. However, the fact is that prior to this uh, global pandemic and the economic recession that was a result, uh, we did not have an overheated economy. The inflation was not out of control. Uh, inflation was basically averaging 2.1% over the last 30 years. And while we do expect that uh, some of that inflation will have uh, manifest itself during this period of time with shortages in the supply chain creating you know temporary spikes in the price of things like lumber and gas and and food and the like that that those things would mitigate over time i think another really important uh, factor to be to consider is the uh, the role of innovation and technology uh and the downward pressure it they play on inflation so you may have always heard of the moore's law when it comes to technology where you know the the price of things have in in uh, uh, in the future as uh, their capacity doubles. That is a thing, but I mean, think about it from your standpoint, uh, just in your own uh, uh, daily cycle of the world. Uh, I know in our business, uh, in our office, we uh, went remote. Um, uh, we're much more efficient than we have ever been, thanks to learning to be Zoom masters and uh, having Zoom meetings with not only our staff, but with clients and providers and, and the like. And those things uh, are going to change the way business is done. I don't know that, that we will maintain as big a footprint in real estate today as we will in, in the future. Uh, but that's an example of where technology and innovation 
can lower the price uh, expectations of inflation over time. So let's consider the possibility of a resurgence scenario for, for as I mentioned before, with the variants uh, uh, multiplying and, and that kind of thing. Would the economic cost of that be as powerful as the first one? And I don't think it is because you know, economies have already learned to adapt. I mean, clearly uh, 18 months ago, we had no idea what COVID was. Uh, today, if we have a resurgence, you know, everybody's got masks, we have PPE in hospitals, uh, uh, we do have <laughs> vaccines that work. Um, and so it would have a negative effect on the economy, but I don't think that, that effect would be as profound uh, in the future as it, as it was the first time through. Now, uh, places like the United States and, and developed Europe would probably experience less of a disruption as a result of a resurgence than say emerging markets economies, which would be more likely hit harder uh, due to their limited healthcare infrastructure as well as lower vaccination levels. Now, another issue has to do with how do economists and market forecasters look at where we are and, and, and sort of frame the argument about what they think is likely to happen next. And one of the challenges there is that some people look at the fact that our economy is contracted. And so therefore we're, we're in the start of a new economic cycle. So for example, we got an update this week from Abesco, really excellent company. And they believe that they're at the beginning of an economic cycle and are arguing that uh, GDP is rapidly recovering to its pre-pandemic peak and that past cycles have shown growth that can continue well beyond previous peaks. I'm not so sanguine about that. Uh, part of the reason for that is, uh, look, uh, between the, the actions of the Fed and Congress with fiscal uh, stimulus, uh, and if they pass the infrastructure bill, I mean, we're talking about $11 trillion being thrown at uh, an economy. And, uh, you know, we think that that's, terrific and, and it's had a, 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 the desired effect of not you know, triggering a, a, a depression globally. But at some point, the impact of that spending uh, and that money printing, if you will, uh, is gonna come home to roost. And clearly there have been some long-term economic costs to this that we have yet to see because of that enormous infusion of money and support to the economy uh, and and uh, uh, to the lives of everyday Americans. In that same Invesco mid-year uh, update, uh, they were talking about the three major economies in the world, that, which is the, the US, the Eurozone, and China, and that uh, they expect the Eurozone and the US to grow above the trend in 2021 based on reopening and successful vaccination efforts, though that will moderate and they expect growth to remain above the trend for them, whereas China, they're, they're poised to glow at a, a slower but still substantial clip. There is no question that the um, COVID vaccines are successfully limiting infections around the world, and, and, it's, and it's, uh, it's fading in major economies, uh, which, which makes uh, it easier for uh, longer-term economic uh, trends to take effect. The U.S. Uh, may provide clues for what's to come in other economies. If you look at, for example, financial conditions in terms of just easing of monetary policy and that kind of thing, uh, we're in easier conditions than we've been since uh, 2009. Uh, manufacturing has gone back up quite a bit uh, since the, uh, the trough in 2020. 
Retail sales from e-commerce have declined modestly as the U.S. economy has reopened, but there is no question in my mind that uh, I'm way more comfortable spending money on an e-commerce uh, purchase than going out to a store. Um, and then clearly, uh, if anybody's been to the airport recently, Americans are very happy to be out there and traveling again. I went back to the East Coast about a month ago and I was staggered by how many people were out and about. So uh, the, the economy is definitely picking up in the U.S. and that may uh, uh, send us in good stead for the rest of the world. Another major thing, and we referred to it a few minutes ago, is the, is the amount of emergency monetary programs that are pumping cash into central banks. The Fed has injected $3.7 trillion, the Bank of Japan $1.2, European Central Bank at $9.1. So since March, uh, $9.5 trillion has flowed uh, into balance sheets, um, which has helped uh, the economy and the various markets recover very well. Finally, with respect to inflation, remember, I mean, people are talking about inflation going up, and that's always a concern. But, you know, when I got into business in 1983, inflation was 13%, and it's been lower than three for a long time. So while we do think it's an issue, uh, we don't think you should uh, open a vein, because guess what, it's still a pretty minor uh, force today compared to what it has been in the past. So I would like to turn our discussion now to uh, Social Security, retirement, and what the impact of COVID has had on some of these uh, forces. You know, Democrats and Republicans, as we all know, don't agree on much, uh, but this is an area in which they tended to agree quite a bit, and that has to do with their views on retirement security. According to a new survey conducted by the Economic Innovation Group that looked at 1,000 registered voters across the United States, retirement security is a problem for the country, uh, and more than four out of five Americans believe that. Over nine out of 10 say that Social Security alone is not enough to financially prop up retirees during their golden years, with Democrats and Republicans seeing nearly eye to eye at 92% for Democrats and 94% for Republicans, respectively. According to John Lettieri, uh, uh, the Economic uh, Innovation Group president and chief executive, told Yahoo Money that there's pretty strong bipartisan alignment, especially considering how polarized most economic policy issues are today when it comes to the political angle. A pathway to secure retirement isn't an inherently left or right political consideration. And just about everybody you ask say, yeah, I want to have retirement security for my family. Um, the problem is that the, the country's retirement savings system is, is well designed for the top 50% of earners, said uh, Lettieri, but far less so for lower income uh, earners. It leaves most uh, uh, the behinds the workers who ostensibly need the most help and would benefit the most from a targeted policy to expand access to uh, sponsored retirement plans. Uh, the fact is that uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, lower wage earner uh, employees that don't have access to a retirement plan. And so there are some actions uh, uh, in Congress to try to expand that um, and, and expand access to that uh, across the board. Um, so, for example, um, you know, the impact of COVID, for example, during the last, uh, you know, 18 months, uh, according to uh, uh, Yahoo Money, 
since March of 2020, more than a third of Americans have rated their retirement savings just to get by, uh, according to the survey. And according to that same survey, those who cashed out depleted an average of 44% of their balances and more than one in six spent that said they spent more than $25,000 from their retirement savings. Those amounts are staggering, especially when you consider it in the context that 91% of voters say that all Americans should have the ability to participate in a retirement savings plan, yet only 59% actually do, leaving tens of millions of workers without the opportunity to establish a savings nest egg with critical investment tools. According to Lettieri, uh, uh, this underscores the need for Congress to take action in creating legislation to provide much needed support to working Americans who don't have access to means of building wealth and financial securities, as well as bridging the wealth gap. Uh, they were proposing to expand on the federal thrift savings plan, which is the retirement savings plan used by the federal government for its employees to all working Americans. Uh, voters seem to be on board and support for a universal savings plan, which is about 78% of those polled, beat out other prominent wealth building initiatives by a large margin. Um, so, you know, this is an ongoing problem, but uh, uh, it, it isn't getting any better. I know in our industry, we have a, uh, we're independent uh, financial advisors and registered investment advisors and represented by a, a lobbying group called Financial Services Institute, which I've been back to Congress a couple of times and lobbied. And one of the things that we're talking about is exactly this issue, because uh, helping our clients, uh, not only the wealthy ones, but uh, the, employ the employers who employ some of the lower wage earning folks uh, to expand access to uh, a retirement plan is critical since we all know that Social Security um, alone is not enough. Now, of course, there are people that think, oh my gosh, the Social Security system is bankrupt and it's going to go out of business. Well, I think that's nonsense. Uh, you know, all they have to do is expand the amount of money that is taxed. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm an employer. I don't want to pay taxes any more than anybody else. Uh, but uh, those projections for Social Security are done on a 75-year basis. And so it's very easy to get alarmed by data that suggests like, oh my gosh, in, 20, in 2035, it's going to run out of bill. Well, yeah, but you can easily solve the problem by maybe increasing the, the, uh, the, the, the tax by a half a percent and uh, increasing the amount of money uh, that it is taxed on. Uh, so I don't agree with those uh, alarmists uh, who think that Social Security is going away. It's not. Uh, but it was never designed to be a full retirement plan for people. It was, to, it was designed to actually prevent uh, senior poverty um, with people that hadn't uh, another means of supporting themselves uh, in their golden years. On another area uh, and an, another source, Motley Fool uh, recently talked about 15% of workers are delaying retirement because of COVID-19, should you follow suit, is the name of the article. Um, and, and they talk about the fact that when the coronavirus uh, outbreak first hit, a lot of people saw their worlds turned upside down. Uh, not only did the economy shed millions of jobs within weeks, but many people who didn't get laid off encountered added expenses 
or some degree of, uh, of income loss that affected their finances in a negative way. Uh, now, according to uh, a, a nationwide survey that they conducted, 15% of Americans are postponing uh, retirement as a result of the pandemic. Um, now, you know, the question is, should you follow suit? And I think the answer is it depends on your circumstances. So, for example, in March of 2020, I mean, we experienced our first bear market in more than a decade. Uh, and so as a result, people were going, oh, my gosh, we have a retirement crisis. But then the market recovered. And yet people are still talking about, well, maybe I should I should postpone your you know, my retirement. Now, as I said before, it depends. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're really honed in to, on is what happens if you have a major contraction in the value of your 401k plan, assuming you're participating in one uh, within five years of retirement? That's a problem. So if you're young, uh, then, you know, this is a non-issue in terms of should I delay retirement because of COVID? But if you experienced uh, a loss or you took a lot of money out of the market when the market went down and then didn't put it back in, now that may create more of an issue because if you didn't uh, sell, then it was pretty much a non-event, this COVID thing, at least to date. That's not to say that in 2023, we can have a major recession on our hands and, and see market values decline again. But, but if, if, if you did, however, take your money out and then didn't put it back in on time, and now suddenly you're a couple hundred thousand behind the eight ball, now suddenly uh, that may make it more sensible to consider, well, maybe I work another year or two. But you know, bottom line is it, it always is a matter of your personal circumstances. Most important, how much money do you need to live on? And most people that I talk to have no idea. Uh, we have uh, a wonderful uh, retirement expense calculator. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can contact Mike uh, or you can go to our website at opus111group.com and we can, we'd be happy to send that to you and you can use that to determine what, what your needs are. Now I'd like to talk about the summer doldrums. Uh, since we're uh, most of the way through July and August, often people say, well, what happens in the summer? And and uh, typically, you know, what months are the best months to, to, uh, uh, to invest and how do they do and all of that stuff. And first, before we get there, I'd like to just give you a, some statistics that I use when I, when I do my lectures at Stanford University and, and, uh, uh, and, and in other places. And that is uh, the, the rule of uh, 55, 65, and 75. And, and what does that refer to? Well, the market, the stock market tends to be up in 55% of all individual trading days. There are 252 trading days in a year, 65% of all trading months, and 75% of all trading years. Um, and so I think this issue is a little bit specious. To, well, you know, what's the best month to put the money to work? Because uh, first of all, I, we don't think that way. We're not timing the market this month or next month. I suppose if you're a day trader, then you can do that. But uh, I have never met a rich day trader before in my life. Um, and uh, normally it just doesn't work out. But uh, still, it is an interesting exercise. And I did come across a pretty interesting uh, a website called Money Chimp, uh, com. And if you go there, they have money market returns, uh, and they call it the January effect. And they, and they kind of tell you, going back 60 years uh, of S&P 500 data, 
what the parameters are and the typical returns are for the various months. And I'm just going to go through them and rattle them off. Um, and you'll see that they're, I mean, I don't know that these patterns mean anything. Uh, it wouldn't affect what we do typically. Um, but there are some instances which I will refer to in terms of rebalancing months. Um, but that, that has less to do with what month it is and more to do with how many people are trading in, that, in those particular months. Um, but basically going back uh, all the way down to uh, as early as uh, 1953, in January, uh, uh, on a one-year basis, it was up 43 uh, years, down 28 years, and the average return uh, for that month is 0.97%. February, um, up 40 years, down 31 years, uh, and the average return was negative uh, 0.12. March, up 44 years, down 27 years, and the returns are a positive 0.85. Remember, these are monthly returns. In April, up 50 years, down 21 years, and the average return is positive 1.56. In May, up 42 years, down 29 years, and the average return is up 0.17. In June, up 37 years, down 34 years, and the average return is still positive at 0.06. In July, up 41 years, down 30 years, and the average return is 0.99. In August, up 39 years, down 32 years, and the average return was a negative 0.16%. In September, up 32 years, down 39 years. I take offense of that, my birthday's in September, uh, and the negative return is 0.62. In October, up 43 years, down 28 years, and the average return is up 0.62%. In November, uh, the, uh, sorry, uh, just a sec, um, up 48 years, down 23 years, and the average return is uh, positive 1.53%. And finally, in December, um, up 53 years, down 18 years, and the average return is a positive 1.39%. So I don't suggest that you spend any time actually trying to take advantage of which month is the right month to put money to work. Uh, the way we look at it is that, uh, you know, just dollar cost averaging, for example, when you uh, are participating in a 401k plan the, that we talked about in the last segment, um, you know, uh, you're putting the same amount of money in every month. And sometimes the market's going to be higher and you won't buy as many shares. And sometimes it'll lower, you'll buy more, but you'll end up with a better overall average uh, uh, cost basis than trying to pick the single best day out of 252 days of the year to put your money to work. Now, we manage a fair amount of money in models and I'm, in, I'm the chief investment officer. And uh, so we watch this a lot. And most people, and I'd say, and you know, this is not scientific number, but I'd say 90 plus percent of all rebalances uh, occur on what we call the JJO cycle, which is January, April, July, and October. And when I talk about rebalancing, I'm saying, all right, let's say I had you know 10, 10 positions in a model, 10 mutual funds, each one was you know, 10%. And uh, we look at it uh, out a quarter and now suddenly one's at 12 and one's at eight. So we would trim down the 12 and buy back the ones that's at eight. And we would do that on the January, April, July, and October segment. 
So uh, the reason why I bring this up is that we don't do that. We actually use different months. We we do the what's called the F-man cycle, um, which is February, May, uh, August, November. Why? Because everybody else does their rebalancing in January, April, July, and October. And as a consequence, uh, there's a lot more distortions because so much more, more money is in motion. People are buying and selling, and it'll inflate and deflate certain prices. I want my rebalances to reflect not the the demand associated with all this money coming in and or being taken out of those positions. I want to be able to do it based on what their actual values are. So by choosing a different cycle than the vast majority of people out there, then you're not going to be as subject to uh, price distortions. You're going to get a more realistic picture of, uh, you know, of what's going on uh, uh, and, 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 and how to rebalance to get your, your portfolio back in its intended shape. This idea that, oh, you know, you should, you know, go away in, in May and buy in January, you know, whatever. I mean, there are all these old saws in our business, which are mostly nonsense in my experience. Um, I think it's much more important to make decisions based on what's your long-term plan, working with a financial advisor, coming up with a plan <clears throat> to, to address specific goals that are in line with values that are important to you. And that's the way we do our business. Um, and then uh, if the market does, for example, what it did last year with uh, the, the coronavirus and, and a 37% drop from January to uh, March 23rd, you look at that and say, okay, instead of reacting and going, I think we should sell, our mindset is different. We say, okay, what's on sale, right? So I liken that to if you were a clothes hound and, you know, Nordstrom's, which is a wonderful company based here in the Northwest, and everybody knows it, um, you know, if, if they suddenly announced that tomorrow and tomorrow only, uh, everything in the store was off uh, 75%, you know, there'd be a line around the block and down the street for miles uh, with people that want to get in there and take advantage of that. And yet, when it comes to investment, people have a different attitude. They're suddenly, oh my gosh, uh, I want to pull in my reins and curl into a fetal position on the floor and, and wait this out. Well, that's the wrong way to do it. So last year, for example, I, uh, we have our investment committee and I said to all our advisors, look, let's, let's figure out what's, what's going to do well with, uh, with this coronavirus. Uh, so we looked at things like Netflix and, and you know, communications companies uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and we also thought, well, you know, UPS uh, is a pretty good bet because guess what? People are going to be doing more online ordering and uh, UPS had been hammered. It dropped from 160 to 90. We bought it. And it's, it's over $200 a share now. So I would rather have you look at the, your plan, your situation, and make decisions based on that. And when the market declines, you see what's on sale and see how you can take advantage of it rather than reacting the, the other way or following some, you know, rule of thumb like, oh, you know, you should buy in January and go away in May and then come back in October. The heck with that. Anyway, this is Jim Harvey. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we encourage you to go to our website, opus111group.com, where you'll learn more about what we can do for you. And we hope uh, you have a great Saturday.
Thanks so much. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.